Greetings and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Cathern. My guest today is Johannes Hobtu, a retired fighter and current Philadelphia area strength and conditioning coach. I first met Johannes at a conditioning class at Web MMA in South Jersey, and we've been discussing death metal and strength training ever since. This conversation begins with an answer to the question, how much you bench? Uh, recently, or have I ever? <laughs> Tell me both. Uh, well, in college, I got 325, but I was also 190 pounds then. And most recently... in college? Right, yeah. Yeah, dude, I was a, dude, I was a safety, man. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I wasn't always this, this thick and juicy, you know what I mean? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was a I was a safety you know, when I got to um, Bloomsburg, but then when I um when I stopped playing football and I started like focusing more on like combat sports, that's when I got uh that's when I really I mean the 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 lightest I fought was one sixty two. Really? Yeah, at one point, yeah. My last wow. fight, my my fight back in twenty sixteen, I was one sixty two. Yeah, it was brutal, absolutely brutal. I'll never do that again, ever, oh, ever. Man. I... <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so get comfortable. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask you some questions. Yeah, sure. Fire away. So where are you from? Originally, I'm from Africa, from Ethiopia. My parents, well, my mom immigrated here in 1983. I was uh, six months old. And originally, we were supposed to go to Canada, but we got turned away at the border. Really? So, like, would you, yeah. Like, did you get to you take a plane? Did you get like to customs and they were like, no, sorry, you can't come in? Yeah. So I don't know how my mom got hooked up with these people, but there were a Christian missionary group that came into my mom's village when, because at the time, there's a real bad civil war going on. Um, I lost a lot of my, like, my father died. My biological father was killed, and both my brothers were killed in, the, really? in this war. Yeah. And because of that, my mom had to leave. She was only 19 years old. She came to this country. She had, couldn't speak English. Couldn't understand. Like, the culture is completely different. Um, when she got here, she was taken in by this Christian missionary group that, um, yeah, tried to get us into Canada first. We got turned away at the border. And somehow, some way, they finagled us into, um, you know, coming, you know, they, they, you know, they got us in the States. So what part of Ethiopia? Addis Ababa. That's where, that's where my oh, mom's so George was. were at the capital. Right, yeah, yeah. So were you so, speaking the language? Very, very, not, not much. So, like, I could understand if my mom speaks slow, but if she starts speaking, like, when she gets mad, she'll, she'll talk Amharic really, really fast. And then I can't understand it, but when she starts, like, slowing it down, I'm like, Mom, I, I understand you just called me a, a piece of shit, so... <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, yeah. I, every now and then, um, my girlfriend will tell me words in Amharic, and I, I, I just can't. I can't keep track because I'm not studying it. But I do know, I do know that if someone calls you a deb deb, that means that you're a dumb dumb. Yeah, dumb. Yeah. <laughs> and my mom, she would always call. Me, um, uh, what the hell she used to call me when I, I was I was a kid? Uh, oh no, she'd call my sister Shaimuta, and 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 that means like a bitch. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, like whenever she would get mad, she would go, uh, and I'm like, Mom, you just called. No, my sister, my oldest sister's name is Fawini, and she would call her, and in, in, in English, it means like dumb bitch. Was it just you that came? So it was just you and your mom that came to the States? No, me, my mom, and I, I have an older sister. She's um, four years older than me. 
And my younger sister wasn't born yet because my mom didn't marry my uh, stepdad. So my mom, we we lived here. She didn't meet him until I was about three. And I don't know if you saw my pictures, like because my stepfather yeah, unfortunately I passed did. recently. And there were some pictures of me and him at like I was like the best man at his wedding, and he's like holding my hand. And he pretty much raised me up until the time, you know, him and my mom split up. And I mean, he was still in my life. Him and my mom would have, uh, they'd been married for 13 years. And then that, and that's when they split. Man, I'm sorry for your loss, Johannes. Uh, thank you, man. I appreciate it, man. It's a rough way to start the year. Yeah, it, it was, yeah, it was super tough, man, because, you know, he was, uh, the only father figure I had in my life. And when he got sick, he, um, got sick, like when he, well, when he got off his treatment, he had pancreatic cancer and, he was, you know, he's 68 years old when he passed. And when he was going through dialysis and radiation treatment, it was really taking a toll on his body. So my younger sister flew down to see him or flew down to stay with him to kind of oversee what was going on. And then he, he just made the decision that he just wanted to stop treatment because he said, I, I, I just can't do it anymore. You know, I, I get my, my body can't take it. I'm too old. You know, and we knew it was a, um, a matter of time, but we didn't know it was going to be that fast because once he's, because the whole plan was for, we, we were going to move him here to um, Pemberton, New Jersey. Like we were going to set him up with an apartment, take care of all his bills and all that. This between me and my, and my other siblings. And we were just going to take care of him until, you know, the time came that he eventually would pass on. And once he stopped treatment, my sister, I, I remember because he died December 8, 18th. And she told me that Friday, that, 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 that previous Friday, it's like, I, I can't move him because if I do, he's going to, there's a chance he might die in like in route to New Jersey. Hmm. So she's like, I don't, I, mean, I just, you know, want to tell you that I just, I just can't move him because he's not going to make it. So I spoke to him that, well, actually, no, I, I spoke to the nurse that following Saturday and I was asking, I was like, well, what are we looking at timeline wise? Because I was going to fly down there to see him uh, before he died. And, uh, she said, I'll be surprised if he lives a week. And she was like almost spot on because he died that following Thursday. So I spoke to him on that Monday. He was, he was in, he seemed like, you know, I can tell he was in pain and he was trying to uh, just block it out so we can have a conversation. And, you know, I didn't keep on the phone long. We spoke maybe 15 minutes. I told him, you know, I was like, dad, you know what? I'll call you tomorrow. Um, get some rest. So I called him the next morning. He's again, I can hear in his voice. He was in, you know, hurting a little bit. So again, I just said, I love them. You know, I'm going to call him again after work. So I called him again after work. Um, then I was, you know, we spoke for like, you know, another 15, 20 minutes. Um, then I texted him the next morning. I was like, yo, that is a cool. If I call you the work, he's like, you know what? I'm not really feeling well. Let me call you. Let's link up again on Thursday. And then he died Thursday morning. So yeah, it was a, it was a rough month, man. And I had, um, you know, I had these plans for him to like, cause he's never, he's, he's, he's seen my kid through like Skype. But he never got to meet him because by the time they were born, he was he was retired and already moved out of North Carolina. Okay. So they never actually got a chance to actually meet him in person. But we just, you know, they've talked to him through Skype and you know, Facebook Messenger and things like that. But um, like I said, the plan for him to move up here, I was just going to try and have him spend as much time, you know, with my kids as possible. Before, I mean, we all knew the eventual outcome, but uh, I didn't think it was going to be that fast. And he then he 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 died the literally the day that Thursday, the day after we spoke, he died at five o'clock Thursday morning. My sister called me and told me he passed. So are you, are you close with your sisters? Yeah. 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 I'm really close to my younger sister. My, 
I just reconnected with, because I have two other sisters, my sister Fawine, and I have another sister named Keisha who lives in Chicago. And I also have a, um, another brother on my, uh, on my dad's side that he had before him. My mom got married. He lives in, um, he, he lives in Cherry Hill, I believe. And we all, you know, cause we all reconnected down the funeral and I haven't, cause we didn't, you know, we didn't, we would talk like we're sparingly, but we haven't seen each other in a few years just cause everyone's, you know, my sister Keisha was in Chicago. My brother was out in, in Jersey raising his family. And then when we went down to the Virginia to, um, to, to, to the funeral, we all reconnected. So we have like a, a group text now. Um, we're planning on going to a summer vacation in Cabo. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> we'll see how my kids, what my kids allow me to do. So ironically, we reconnected through the, the passing of my dad, which was like the one thing he always preached about was, you know, I just want my family to be together. Because he, you know, that's all he cared about was like us, like not losing touch and us, you know, being close and, you know, whenever you talk to him, he would just say, I just want my kids to, you know, to like love each other and just be there for another. And, you know, I'm, I try to kind of take those I those values that he had as far as, you know, me, my siblings being close and try to apply that to my kids. Now, was my, you know, my dad was a good man, but like any other human being, he had his issues. He was fallible like anyone else. But, you know, he was, you know, he, he was a great guy and you know, uh, you know, I, I'm going to miss him until the, you know, until the day I died. And I feel like uh, a part of me died with him and it just, um, I'll never get over it. Like I'll learn to manage it, but, um, you know, I'll, um, I'll never get over it. Like he's, you know, he was, you know, he was a world to me and uh, he meant a lot. And, you know, and the worst thing that I had to deal with was just knowing that I can never talk to him again. It just, you know, when you're, you know, my only regret was that he never got to meet my kids and that, that hurt a little bit. I'm still working through that stuff now. Does that make you want to be an even better father? Oh yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, it just sucks because when I talk to my girls about him, you know, cause my daughters are young, four and two and his name was Jake and they call him pop pop Jake. And, uh, they don't understand that pop pop Jake isn't going to be around anymore. Right. Uh, they don't understand that Pop Pop Jake died. I mean, Toby, my oldest daughter, will say, "Dad, the Pop Pop Jake died." And I'll say, "Yeah, you know, he he died." I remember, we went to the funeral, and she, and she would just always say, uh, "Do you have pictures?" So we will look at pictures of him. Just you know, I don't know how to explain to a you know a child you know the concept of you know dying. It's just uh something that's not going to you know I don't I'm not you know equipped to deal with right now. I'm not trained to. <laughs> you know, have these conversations with children or things like that. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, so know, everyone's got their own thing. And, and, and sometimes it's just, you know, that's an, that's an age related thing. Sometimes it's just, I need you to be there. You know, it's not always, right. like, Oh, I can fix this by talking about it or explaining it to you. And no, and uh, no, it's crazy. Like he was actually there when uh, my last college football game, where I, where I got a hurt, where I jacked on my back. And uh, he made a joke, like when he, cause I was come out of the, I was coming out of the trainer's room and, and uh, he was just like, oh, I guess that goes my retirement. Cause I always told him I was, <laughs> you know, I had this like grandiose idea. I was going to go to NFL and I was like, oh, dad, you have to worry about him and make you money. He was just, you know, he was trying to like make light of the situation because I was pretty upset about it. And then uh, he was like, oh, there goes my retirement. And, you know, he just tried to make, you know, a joke about it. So he had that kind of sense of humor. Uh, like I said, he was just a great dude, man. And, um, 
you know, he just really preached the idea of like, you know, the family being together, even though him and my mom didn't work out, that didn't, you know, that there, that wasn't a deterrent for him not to be involved in our lives. And my mom always said like, yeah, I mean, your, 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 your dad always wanted you to, you know, you guys be close and, you know, and, you know, that, that I think that, and also because of him dying, it kind of brought me to this realization of this idea that I, and not that I did think of it before, but it hit me harder after he passed was like this idea of time. And like, I don't have as much time as I think I have. I don't because in the, in the, in the time that he got sick up until he died, it was literally days. It wasn't like I had a couple months or anything like that. It was literally like five days after he got off treatment that he died. So I'm trying to be more conscious of what I spend my time on, who I spend my time with people. I invest my time in um, and really trying to be conscious of those and then like setting boundaries with people too and realizing that people aren't just going to waste my time because if I'm not doing something to make myself better, granted, if I want to be a better strength coach or a better dad or just a better, you know, husband to my wife or just a better man to my family and, and, and the people that I really have affection for, then I don't really have, you know, time to waste on the people who I just don't give a shit about. Preach. Did your dad get you into sports? He got me into football. I wasn't originally... Because when I was younger, I was like one of those fat kids that just want to play video games all day. So okay. he's like, "Look, he's like, he's like, look, man, you need you need to do something." Because he was a roofer, so in the summer times, I would roof with him. And but like, no, he would take in the Philly area. Yeah, yeah. So it's a suburb of Philly, uh, Bucks County. Okay. And yeah, we yeah we lived in Bristol, Bristol Borough at the at the at the time. So he would. So the summers I wasn't in school, he would take me out to jobs and we would roof and I'd help him like bring shingles up the ladder. I'd help set up like, you know, uh, the tar paper. I, you know, just help him with like general labor, like clean up and stuff like that. And I fucking hated it. So he, he was like, all right, well, if you're not going to, you know, he's like, you're not going to sit in the house all summer and do nothing. So you're either going to work or you're going to play sport. So I was like, all right. So he signed me up for like pot one or football when I was like eight. And mind you, I was like a fat kid, so I wasn't used to like exercising and running and shit like that. So I struggled a little bit at first, but he was always encouraging. And, and uh, you know, that was probably one of the last summers I roofed up until I got to high school because I, you know, I wanted to buy a car and shit. So I would roof like with him during the June and July month to come August. I'd, I'd be in camp for uh, football for middle school and high school. So, yeah, it was just my way of getting out of working. <laughs> I started actually playing sports. That's not a bad uh, trade off. Yeah, dude, roofing's rough too, man. I don't know if you ever did that before. It is. I've never done roofing, but I have spent time on roofs uh, in summer months, and it is not fun. And I don't like warm weather to begin with. So, like, the last, <laughs> I was on a lift in August, like the middle of August, working on windows at a, in a house up in um, Maniunk where the the uh, sides of it were like white stucco so it was reflecting the sunlight on an angle towards where we were working while i was trying to work on these windows it was the most we had to take like 20 minute breaks every hour and chug gatorade to keep working because it was so ridiculous and we had to wear masks because this is like the height of covid paranoia and they were like keeping an eye on us and mm -hmm. so, yeah, I have no desire. And I saw the roofers doing this thing. But, yeah, I have no no desire to uh, be a roofer. So Yeah, dude, it, it was yeah, it was it was rough work, man. Even me not actually knowing how to roof at the time, just even 
hauling shingles up a ladder because they're about like, you know, 60 or 70 pounds, you know, for those big packs of shingles. So you run them yeah, up a ladder. Condition you for football? I not at the time. I didn't give a shit about condition. I was just tired. I just wanted to go home and <laughs> and he and he paid me like ten dollars an hour to be out there dying. And uh yeah, man, it was just character, man. No, yeah, definitely. It was one of those things where he was he was old school, man. He was a military guy. Like he didn't play that shit. It was uh, you want something, you better go get a job. It wasn't like he gave me stuff. Plus, me being a boy, I'm you know, trying to him trying to raise a man, it was that even he kind of drilled that in my head even further. It was like, yeah, you you like you want something, bro. You gotta go get a job or you gotta work for like when I first bought my first guitar, I was um I was 16. I bought this beautiful it actually got stolen out of my car. It was this, uh when I actually bought a car when I was 17, but uh it was this beautiful red Jackson, it was like a Rhodes uh flying V. And I got it at a local guitar shop for still was like three hundred dollars, but I had to like cut grass and and like I said, roof with him on the weekend and things before I could buy it. But yeah, he was just, you know, you got to work. You want something, you better work for it type of guy. And um, yeah, he didn't, he didn't pull punch, especially with the boys in the house. You know, he wasn't one to give us much slack as far as like developing work ethic and, you know, just trying to develop us to like, you know, good, just good human beings as a whole. So you learned, you learned the hustle pretty early on then. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you start off like on the offensive line because you were a fat kid? Like, how did how did your uh, oh, yeah. positions develop as you? So I, so I started off as a center, but the problem yeah, was, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I started off as a center, but the issue was, every time I snapped the ball, I I didn't know I was snapping it wrong because at the when 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 you hike the ball, you're supposed to turn the ball so the quarterback can get a good grip on it. I hiked it straight back, and then the ball would always slip out of his hands and I would get yelled at. So it took me a while to like perfect that. So I couldn't step the ball properly and I would get reamed, reamed at all, all the time because I just couldn't, I, for some reason at that time, I just could not get the snap of, of the ball and be able to turn it properly for the quarterback to get a good grip on it. So I got moved to offensive guard. Now, when I got to middle school, I, I stayed at guard because by that, time i got i was in pretty decent shape by then because i was you know lifting and stuff like that with my team in my middle school so they put me off offensive line so i played offensive line at defensive end but when i got to high school i played guard like that all through my ninth through 12th grade year i was offensive guard uh and reason being is because i actually was in decent shape back in those days and i was able to run fast so but my coach at the time he ran a lot of sweep plays and we ran we we basically ran like a wishbone like the uh like the army does and they have a lot of pulling like from the guard to tackle. So because I was relatively mobile too, um, it was just, you know, me pulling this way, pulling that way, pulling backside, pulling front side. It was, it was exhausting because I was running a lot as a lineman, not just to run to make blocks in the secondary, but running to make blocks on defensive ends and offensive and defensive tackles and such on trap plays and everything like that. So yeah, I ran a lot as a, I ran as a lineman. And then when I got to college, um, they're like, yeah, you're way too small to be a lineman, so we'll put you in safety. Because, again, I was still relatively fast and, and athletic. And also, you know, when I got there, even though I played Division II, um, those guys are big, man. Those, those dudes, those you're dudes on offensive sure. line. What are you, six? Right. No, I'm, I'm like maybe six foot and on like a good day. But these you have dudes. A big that, personality, Johannes. I guess I yeah. you were taller. <laughs> but now these guys, man, again, even at the D2 level, 
Um, these guys were 6'3", 6'4", like 275, 280. And thinking it's not like they're slow slobs. These guys can move. And I just remember the first time I took like a really, really solid block by offensive tackle. We were playing um, – it was Kutztown. And they just ran a, a sweep. And I ran up the, you know, submarine – the lineman, and I didn't know he can get lower than me, and then he did, and he just cleaned my clock, and I was like, wow, this is something I have to <laughs> adjust to because I wasn't used to guys being that big and that athletic. And, uh, yeah, man, uh, college football became more of a job. than it. It, was, it was fun because, again, I got a chance to um, meet a wide array of people. Uh, I got a chance to see what athletics was like at that level. But at the same time, once I got hurt, I was like, I'm not going to the NFL, so why am I – you know, why am I doing this? What year did you get hurt? Uh, sophomore year. It was beginning. Of, it was beginning of sophomore year, and then I was only on a partial scholarship. So once I got hurt, they're like, "Well, you're not like a a world beater that we need on the team." So they were like, "Oh, well, you can stay, but you know, your scholarship's going to get revoked." And I'm like, "No, nah, I'm good." So, well, how did you hurt your back? Like, what actually got hurt? Oh, so I got hit on a crackback block. So I was it was on a kick return. Right, I'll never forget a crack it. Crackback block to me. I don't. I'm not. I don't know that term. All right. So a crackback block is essentially a blindside block where someone will over pursue on purpose. So you run up field, and so they crack back on you in to get into your blind spot. It's like someone punching you when you're not looking. Essentially. So instead of so, clipping you, they're like stepping in from the side, and you don't see them. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You don't see them coming. So what happened? I was on a kick return. I never forget it. We we're playing King's College. So. The, um, the the guy that hit the crackback on me purposely over-pursued me. So I'm thinking I'm going to make a play on the ball. But what I didn't know, that he circled around, and by the time I got to the ball, to, to, to the ball carrier, he just cleaned my clock. But he hit me in, like, the, my, in like my kidney area. So essentially, yeah, he hit me pretty hard. And I, like, I, it's weird because I felt like, I, like my body went numb. So I'm laying on the ground, and I just, you know, I was in agony. You know, the trainer came over, she helped me up, and then I went to the sideline, uh, and I'm thinking, oh, God, man, this, like, really sucks. And then we took me to the training room. I had this really, really, really bad sort of uh, sprain on my lower back, and it didn't heal for – it felt like forever, but it was probably, like, good 8, 12 weeks until, like, I got semi-better so I can actually, like, feel like I can, like, lightly jog or maybe even do some body weight, you know, uh, like, workouts or, or, or something like that. But, yeah, once they – I got the – you know, went to the – head coach's office and he just pretty much told me hey man uh not we have no idea where you're going to get better but we can't wait for you and so here's your here's your walking papers essentially yikes <laughs> so okay um, man but no so but here's the interesting thing well what i've what i've learned just you know in the short time i've gotten to know you is that like you pivot when things don't go your way so it's like okay, mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't play video games i have to work all right fine i'll work and then you're like, okay, there's an option here with working. Okay, I'll play football. So you're playing football. And then, like, you get to a point, you get to college, and you're like, okay, offensive line's not going to work. Okay, so let me learn safety. And then you, like, you pick up these skills in different areas, depending on what your skill set, your size, what the competition looks like. And so then, you know, after how many years of football is that before you get injured? That's what. Uh, what, 10 years? You played football for like yeah. 10 years or something like that? I mean, I, got, I, I took a couple of rough ones. In high school too, but you know you bounce back a lot easier when you're 16 years old as opposed to, you know, 20. Right. At least at that time, I, the last time I felt that way. Um, but yeah, I, I took a couple of dingers in high school too. So, but I just didn't. 
it, did, it didn't affect me in that way as that as that, as that blocked it, man. Because like my back hasn't been, and on top of that, I also played rugby and lacrosse in high school, and and I threw shot. But dude, I did a bunch of you know extracurriculars, and it was all because I wanted to still stay relatively good shape for football. So when my football coach just told me, he said, "Yeah, play some off-season sports, you know, wrestle, do lacrosse, uh, you know, throw a shot put. That way, when it comes time for camp in August, you're not like." terribly out of shape or out of shape at all because a lot of the guys that I played with at the time, they would just play football and do nothing else. They would just, you know, their body became deconditioned. So I just thought, well, I'm not good enough to where I can do that. So I got to figure out another way to stay in shape and get ready for camp in August. So when did lifting become part of your, your regimen for your uh, athletic performance? So it was, it was based in high school. So we had this coach, his name is coach for Um He was actually like, in the hall of fame at our school, I uh, went to uh, high school at Harris Truman and um, in Levittown. And he had, he was on like the hall of fame. He was apparently a super like talented running back when he was in co- when he was in college. And he, he played, I think in a, I want to say in some sort of like, it's kind of like the CFL in Canada, but it was in the United States at the time. He never made it to the NFL, but he played for some like minor league team that was like an associate with the NFL. And then the same thing, he got hurt. So when I was talking to him, uh, I was the one day we're in, we're, in, we're in the weight room. He told me how he hurt his neck and how he had to learn how to, you know, strengthen his neck. That way it would be less prone to getting hurt. But the only way he would do that was in, was, was in the weight room. And so he just talked to me. He would always talk to me about the importance of being strong, especially in a sport like football, where it's, again, it's head on head, you know, it's head on collisions with guys, you know, probably bigger than you. So you're going to have to be stronger than them. And me being in the uh, position I was in as a lineman, I was relatively small compared to some of the guys that we had in, in, in our um, in our league, uh, in our conference, because we were in PIAA 4. It was 4A, which it was the toughest in the state. And we played schools like CB West, Council Rock, um, CB East. Uh, we played North Penn. So these are all in CB West at that time was the most dominant school in the state. They were absolutely just running through teams and winning back to back to back state titles. And those kids were big. I don't know what they were feeding those kids up there, up in, up in central bucks, man. Them, them kids were Husky and farm boys, but he just kept putting in my head. Hey man, you, you got to get bigger. You got to get stronger. You got to get faster. And that's the only way you're going to do that is in here. So I kind of took heed to that and I wanted to, and I wanted to be good. I, I wanted to be at least the best I could be, but I knew that, at the position I was in, I was undersized. So I had to, you know, get stronger. And there was, that's the only way to really, cause I'm, you know, however big I'm going to get, I'm going to get, you know, that's just a genetic thing. And I just thought, I just knew if I got stronger, I'd be, I'd be able to be uh, a lot more competitive at the position I played. So did you start uh, powerlifting like from the get or, or how did that work? Just trying to put on- no. It's funny when we looked at it now, when I look at back, my back at it now, it was more like, you know, if you're familiar with Mark Ripto, like a, like the starting yeah, strength guy, strength. he had a five, he had a five by five. It was a lot of, it was a lot of the programming was like, I, I don't know if it was done on purpose or it was just like, they just threw shit on the, you know, the chalkboard to do it. But it was along the lines of that sort of linear progression where we, we would do, you know, these, these five by five, whether it was a power clean or a snatch or a squat deadlift bench. And then we go into our accessory work. And then it was like that. And we lifted four times a week. So we'd have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday off, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday off. Monday, and then that was pretty much the way 
all lifting schedule went. So it was like, I'm looking back now, it was more like a, a five by five sort of uh, linear periodization scheme. What kind of split was it? Were you doing like upper or lower? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was upper one day, lower, but then we had uh, upper, lower uh, the Thursday, Friday, but then we'd max out once a month. But our max out was weird because we never maxed out squat, bench, and dead. It was, it, it was power, clean, squat, and deadlift. Those were our three maxes we had to hit to get into what they would like a thousand pound club, which I got into um, my senior year. But um, of high school, yeah, yeah, nice, <laughs> nice. Yeah, it was only me, this guy, uh, it was me and two other, three other people on my senior class that got into the thousand pound club. So you, you realized that you had to do strength and conditioning to, to keep from getting injured. Mm-hmm. And on top of you wanted to be, have better performance on the field. Right. When you got injured and did you do a bunch of rehab for your recovery? Did you just let it heal? Like how long did it take you to get back into lifting and caring about <laughs> athletics again? Oh, dude, it took, well, to be honest with you, man, I fell into a real, I got super depressed, man, because when I got back from school, I had no, like, again, I had this grandiose idea that I was going to play in the NFL and I was going to be able to retire my mom and I was going to be able to, like, buy my stepdad a, you know, a Ford F-150 or whatever the fuck. Once that happened, I realized, fuck, I have to figure something out because obviously this didn't work out. Um, I the NFL is not going to happen for me. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And I just fell into this dark place, man. And I was like, okay, what can I do to just get myself out of this spot right now that I'm in? That's when I started boxing. But to answer your question about the rehab, yeah, I went to PT twice a week. But then once I stopped going there, that's when I'm like, all right, what am I? I got to I got to I got to do something. I got I got to I got to do something. And then that's when I started boxing. And then from boxing, it just, you know, kind of progressed there into when I started getting like kickboxing, mixed martial arts. Okay. So tell me about your, uh, your boxing progression. I, I, the way people get into combat sports fascinates me because some people are like, oh, I wrestled all through high school, you know, and then I wrestled in college and then decided I should start punching people so I can right. do MMA. <laughs> or, or, or it's something like, oh, I did boxing my entire life and then wanted to do MMA because I watched the UFC and then I had to learn how to wrestle when I was too old to learn how to wrestle. And then like, it becomes this, it's, it's always an interesting discussion. Yeah, man. So it's funny you mentioned that. So when I, you know, obviously football thing didn't work out. Um, it was my dad. There was this guy in our neighborhood. His name was Pepper. He was an old, like old dude, kind of remind me of like Fred Sanford. And he would go around, he would, he would, uh, what did he call it? He would, um, he would, uh, metal. He would, he would like find metal, you know, put it in his like truck scrap. and he go sell it. Yeah, scrap, scrap metal. Yeah, yeah. He was one of the scrap dudes, and he, uh, he, you know, he. I guess he must talk to my dad, and he was like, "Yo, man, uh, Jake told me you want to, you know, you need, you want to, you're interested in boxing." So I was like, "Yeah." So he took me up to this place in Trenton. It was called Muggsy's. It's not, it's not there anymore. It was in South Trenton, and it was like kind of like what you'd expect from like an inner city, like you know, urban boxing gym. It was kind of dingy. Uh, you know, I, I kind of equated to like Rocky when he was fighting Clever Lang when he went back with Apollo yeah. to that gym. It was it was that type of environment, and that's when I got introduced into boxing sparring because I had no idea what the hell I was getting into, and like I don't know. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So I hit the heavy bag for like twenty minutes, and then this guy comes over and was like, "Hey man, uh, you want to?" You know, he said, "You want to move around?" And I said, and "I had no idea what that meant." At that time, I was like, move around. He's like, yeah, you want, you want, you want to spar? 
and the guy I didn't know was a you know been he's been boxing for like twenty years because he was an older dude. So I'm like, oh yeah, I move around. Just so I'm thinking I'm a you know football player, nineteen year old kid. You know I can probably whoop this guy's ass. But again, I didn't know about the culture of boxing when they spar either. So I they gave me headgear. I put on the cup mouthpiece. The guys putting Vaseline all over my face and shit. I'm like, what is this guy doing, dude? I'll never forget it, man. So <laughs> he hit me with his jab. Immediately, I felt my like nose started bleeding the second he punched me. So I'm like, oh, yeah, this sucks. All right. So I'm trying to look like a little bitch at this point. And Rob, when I tell you, so he threw his right hand straight down the pipe. And I tell people this story all the time because it's funny. Like when he hit me, it didn't hurt. But I felt like my body couldn't register pain. That's how hard he hit me. The only, the only, the only thing I remember, I went real fuzzy. And I couldn't feel my legs. Like, I was, like, a wobbly, like, I was, like, a wounded dog at that point. And I was, like, dude, this sucks. Even though I felt no pain. I was, like, because I couldn't. I was all disoriented when he cracked me. And then, you know, we finished the round. And then, like, I was, like, all right, man, you know, I'm done. And, you know, and then he was, like, yo, thanks for the work or whatever. I'm, like, well, yeah, I guess. And I just left. And, you know, my dad picked me up. And, oh, I'm sorry, I went home with Pepper. And he was, like. Hey, man, so how'd you do? I was like, I got hit really hard in the face. Then he kind of schooled me on, hey, man, you know, on the boxing sort of uh, the gym ethics and like the culture of boxing when it came to training at a gym and sparring and stuff. And, you know, and then again, my dad kind of put me on. My dad was a huge boxing fan and he kind of told me, hey, man, just be careful who you train with. You know, they're, they're a little different down there. And again, the more I went to tell me about the culture of boxing, because I've never actually been to a strictly boxing gym. So um, a boxing gym, you all right, I'll use MMA as kind of the, the example. So when you go to the uh, oh, my dog, but when you go to the like when you go to webs, you're videotaping the MMA class or you're taking pictures. But you notice like the way they're moving with each other. They're not, you know, they're being active, but they're not being in- intentional. They're, you know, kind of touching each other when, when they're sparring, they're kicking relatively light. And if they do pick up the intensity as far as the, uh, the sparring go, they're not using a lot of power. In boxing gym, that's complete opposite. They feel as though if you're a fighter and you're sparring, you need to get ready for a fight by fighting, which means they're throwing as hard as they can at you. They're like, they're trying to knock you out. So sparring is fighting in a boxing sparring gym. Is, sparring is fighting. Sparring 100% is fighting. And I learned this lesson very early on, thank God. But that also attributes to a lot of injuries as far as boxing goes. Like when we look at Muhammad Ali, it was said that a lot of his Parkinson's was offset, was started from the sparring because he would spar hard, you know, 10, 12 rounds every single day. And, I, and obviously, if you're, if you're going to hit that much, I don't care who's in front of you, it could be like, a little 150-pound person, over that, you accumulate that much brain trauma, you're eventually going to run into issues later in life. So so how long did you stay at this gym? I was there for like seven years. I was there for a while because, no, no, no. no. I had to learn, like, when I I came back, like, the second, third time, like, yeah, I, I can't do that anymore. I have to start, like, you know, actually learning how to box and learning how to hold my hands properly and defense and, and things of that nature. So Muggsy, who was the owner, um, hooked me up with his son, who was one of the coaches there. And his son at the time, he was retired. I think he was about, I think he might have been in his thirties at that point, but he was, he was already retired and he was coaching other, you know, uh, 
other people to, you know, teach them how to box. So that's how I got hooked up as far as the uh, boxing is, you know, as far as me learning how to box. Okay. So, so you went there for seven years, strictly boxing training. Are you still lifting on the side? You're like, dude, you got like a gym yeah, team, I'm, boxing. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm lifting weights. I'm playing rugby. I was a wild dude, man. And, and, and I would always get in trouble too. Are you still in school right. at this point? Yeah. 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 That's a good point. What did you And, mean? uh, physics. Physics. Okay. So when I, Gives a new you meaning know, to the sweet science, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. Because it kind of puts things in perspective as far as motion and leverage, momentum, and things like that. So I can kind of compare stuff as far as martial arts to that. Uh, that's why I kind of, you know, make these relations between fighting and science, you know, quote unquote. Not that I'm, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson or anything, but uh, that's how it like re- it kind of registers my brain that way. So as soon as you healed up, from that football injury, it was just like, all right, I'm back. Like, what's the next project? Yeah, because, again, I just – that depression, man, that was, like, super real for me because, again, this idea of not only playing professional sports but the idea of being able to take care of my family, especially given what my mom been through up until that point as far as, like, leaving her family back in Ethiopia and getting us here, I felt like I had to pay her back for that somehow. So, again, for me – the only way I could do that is to become an athlete somehow and make a lot of money to be able to, you know, keep her from working. Cause I was, you know, you know, I, I was, I, I owed her. So when that, when that didn't work out the way I thought, that's when, again, my head, I just fell into this really dark spot in my, uh, in my, in, in my life. And I just knew I had to figure out how am I going to get myself out of this? Cause I can't be here forever. Cause I'm going to do something stupid. So I had to figure out a way to get my, to remove myself from that, from those feelings and do something productive. How long did you train before you had your first fight? So funny story with that, as I'm learning how to box and (laughs) and do all these things, you know, my mom and dad were split up at that time. So I was living with my mom. We we lived in this uh, part of the Brooks County called Adventist Ashby. It was section eight housing. And my buddy, um, his name is John. He was training with Henzo Gracie up in Manhattan because he was at NYU. Oh wow! So he's training. What he's training at Hen- so I want to two. I two thousand three, two thousand four. Okay. So is he training with Donaher? Yeah, yeah. Donaher was still there. Yep. Wow. Yep. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Donaher was still there. So, and I was friends with his cousin. Like me, like me and his cousin, we're still really good friends to this day. Um, he was telling me, he's like, "Yo, man." I hear you getting into uh, boxing. I'm like, yeah, you know, I really, really enjoy it, blah, blah, blah. And he knew that I, like, wrestled in high school. Now, I was, like, a you know hobbyist at best. It wasn't like I was a dedicated wrestler, but he knew I had some grappling experience. And he said, yo, man, did you ever try jujitsu? And I was like, no, nah, I didn't know. And I had no idea that I was. I mean, I, I saw, I remember seeing Hoyce Gracie fight Ken Shamrock the first time. And I remember seeing him, you know, trying to show chemo. Yeah, but I didn't knew that was called jujitsu. I just thought that was like, you know, some weird shit that I'd never seen before. And he's like, oh, you know, because I heard, you know, he said, you know, you wrestle. I think you really enjoy it. And I, he was kind of telling me, you know, it's like wrestling, but it was like submissions and you wear a gi. And I, I thought it was like a karate gear or some shit. And I was like, I'm not doing that. that sounds fucking stupid, man. I'm not. I was, I was like, yeah, thanks for no thanks. So we're staying in touch, you know, through, you know, throughout the summer. And he's kept bugging me every time I see him. Like, yo, man, did you find a jiu-jitsu gym? 
and mind you, this was before the Google and Facebook and all that shit. So we had to like go in like the phone book to finally like, go to jujitsu school. So there was actually one um, where I lived. It was probably about a mile down the road, and it was called uh, Mat Rats. So I'm thinking Mat Rats. Okay, let me let me let me go in there. And it, you know when I went in there initially what for the free class, name for something. Yeah. Like- <laughs> Matt rats, right? Yeah, it was it was Matt rats. It was Tom McGonagall, his uh, 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 Matt rats. And um, when I went inside, now Tom McGonagall, uh, apparently he was like a legendary fighter in Bristol when he was coming up because he was he's credentialed in all these martial arts. I mean, savat, kickboxing. Um, he's a black belt in karate. He's got a black belt in taekwondo. So he was a he was a martial artist. He was definitely and. And you see the trophies on his wall. And I will say this for uh, uh, Tommy is that, you know, when he wanted to learn a martial art, he like went to the country to learn it. He didn't like learn it here. Like when he went to oh, Brazil, wow. yeah, when he went to learn Savat, he went to France. When he wanted to learn Taekwondo, he went to Taiwan. When he wanted to learn um, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, he lived in Brazil. Like he was, you know, he was that type of martial artist. So he comes walking out of the back and he has like a mop in, in his hand. Cause like, I assume he was cleaning something up back there and he comes in super friendly, nice guy. Sure. I mean, like I want to say 150 pounds, maybe five, six, five, no five, seven small guy. So again, me being a lunkhead, I'm thinking, what the fuck's this dude going to teach me? Like I can, he's half my size. He's coming out here smiling and shit. Cause in my head, I'm thinking who is Gracie. I'm not thinking, anything else i'm thinking hey, yeah, i want to learn that what they do on tv and in, in, in the cage so i went to my class the very next day i had a um you know, they gave me a loner gi and i got on the mat so we're learning basic armbar from the guard and i'm all discombobulated i have no coordination so at the end of the class um he he sat in the middle of the mat and he just started sparring with everyone he's like all right so we're gonna go uh, live rolling and it was only like seven people it was a bunch of beginners like me but I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, what is this dude going to do to me? I can't see him doing anything. So when it came, because I went last. So as I got to the mat, he's like, all right. And I was standing up like we were going to start from standing, like we we're going to wrestle. He's like, no, down your knees, man. So I get, I, get, I get down on my knees and he pulls me into his guard. So from here, he starts working in um, cross choke. Mind you, I have no idea what he's doing. So I'm not even paying attention. I'm, I'm not even like sensing the fact that I'm about to go unconscious within the next 10 seconds. So he starts tightening the choke, tighten the choke. And I'm thinking, and I'm trying to like push his hands off. I'm like, no, nah, you're okay. You're okay. Then I just, then when I woke up, I was like face down on the mat and he was smiling at me. And I was like, and I know what happened. I was like, uh, what happened? He's like, uh, you went unconscious. And I'm like, this little dude just choked me unconscious. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so from that point on, I, you know, I signed up my, I just time I was still boxing. And that's when I got a taste of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So how long did you do jujitsu? So with him, I was with him until the point where he, his gym, his gym closed down. And then my friend, Matt, who was like my jujitsu buddy for a super long time. He's a black belt now. Um, put me in touch with this guy named Tony Pazensky, who was um, opening a gym not too far from my house on the other side of um, where, where I live, probably about, you know, two miles up the road. So I go in, you know, they give me, you know, the speech about, you know, where this, where they, they were causing Gracie team at the time. So I'm like, oh yeah, this is cool. Cause I, I, when I left Tommy's, it was like, I had, I got like mesmerized by jujitsu cause I got choked unconscious by a 150 pound dude. I was like, I, I have to learn this shit. 
And when his gym closed, I was kind of stuck. I was like, all right, well, I got to find someone to train. And that's when I hooked up with Tony. And I was there pretty much up until, you know, I left that gym. So do you, do you still train jujitsu at all? Yeah. Yeah. It's very sparing. I'm a, I, I, I mean, I'm a purple belt, but I've been a pro belt for like, you know, like nine years just because my training has been so, you know, uh, so inconsistent. And now that, you know, my family and I, I have kids, it's a little bit harder to get to the gym to be able to tra- train consistently. And, um, but you know, I, I, I train with Jonathan whenever I can at the gym. That way I get something. And, but yeah, I, I'm trying to get back into it. No, slowly but surely, but I just want to, uh, definitely, uh, you know, cause I have goals. I like to be a black belt by the time I'm like 44, 45, but I definitely want to get my brown belt in the next year or so. First fight. Dude. So first fight it was in 2006 and I fought in this place called Gators. It was in Delaware County and it was a strip club. So I fought a light heavyweight at the, at the, at, at the time. 205. Two, yeah. Yeah. 205. So the dude that I fought, he was like, he's very tall, but he was like super pudgy. And every, everyone, <laughs> this is bad because everyone was making fun of him, calling him titties because he had like man titties. So everyone just kept yelling titties at him. <laughs> so actually, my first fight's on YouTube. You can fit it, it's oh, on, it's on YouTube. That. You better believe. Oh, it. dude, all my fights are, all my MMA fights are probably on YouTube. But you'll see when you watch the video, he's putting Johannes Happy first fight. It was a place called Gators, it was, it was a strip club. So he so he throws Wait, a punch. Did they, did they clear like the pole out and then like put a cage? So like, so so it was a it was a decent sized stage. So they had one half of the stage was the dudes fighting in the ring because we fought in the ring. There was no cage, and the dancers were on the other side of so the like, uh, stage. Like a boxing ring, then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, all right. So this guy throws a punch at me. I shoot the worst double leg in history. I was able to get him against the ropes. I threw him over my head, but in the process of me throwing him like a suplex, like a belly belly suplex, he puts me to guillotine. So midair. But it wasn't right. I didn't know how tight it was until he got to the mat. So but it was an arm in guillotine. So I'm like, oh my God, I'm gonna get embarrassed. I'm gonna have to tap out. And I hear my coach Tony yelling, fight the hands, grab his wrist, grab his wrist. So I started grabbing his wrist. I started peeling his hand off. And but I got on top of him. Because again, he didn't have he didn't, he didn't really know what he was doing, so I was able to pass his guard as I was getting his hand off my neck. And when I got in the mount, we weren't allowed to punch in the face, so I reached back to punch him in the face. The ref yells, "You know, don't hit him, don't hit." And then I just ended up getting him in the Kimura, and I and I won my first MMA fight at his strip club. So you didn't start by having like a boxing fight; you went right into MMA. I went right into MMA. As soon as I started doing jujitsu, I just went because this one the first, the very first Ultimate Fighter. Um, when when the UFC uh, when Dana and the Fertitas bought the UFC, and I and I remember just watching that first Ultimate Fighter, and I was like, yeah, I'm gonna do some MMA. So the first Ultimate Fighter was in '93, right? The first, yeah, yeah, the first. I mean, the um, yeah, the first UFC, yeah, because that's the yep. But you you mean like the the era like after Dana White bought it? You mean like when? It's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. once yeah, once him and the Fertitas bought it, and they had that first season of Ultimate Fighter. Because oh, everyone, right, right, right. Oh, with um, yeah, with uh, with yeah, Forrest, Forrest Griffith and, and Stephen Bonner. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so man, that's dude. Yeah, because I remember um, Liddell and Pator were coaches on that season because Pator just beat Chuck it up for the two or five pound titles, and now they were doing the rematch. Was that two thousand six? Two thousand? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Better? Okay, all right. So I was in college when that when that was happening, 
And okay. I didn't yeah. understand why these people, these guys were so excited about like, oh, did you see that fight? Oh, you got to watch this fight. Oh, we got to watch UFC. And I'm over here like, no, I, I, I have like, you know, philosophy to study. Right. So, <laughs> Uh, that's pretty funny. So okay, so so you you win in it by by Kimura in a strip club mm-hmm. in Delco. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that's Gators. Yeah, Gators. Gators. Gators is even better. So it's swampy as well. Yeah, um, dude. I'm telling you. But yeah, look on YouTube. My first man. My first fights on there. Okay, so you got the taste of victory, uh, mm-hmm. and then and then you just you just kept going. Like what? So that was an amateur fight. I'm guessing. Like how does that? <laughs> right. Yeah. So that progression I, like through MMA. I mean, I got bit by the bug, man. I just wanted to, you know, fight and compete, like, all the time. And I ended up just doing that. I mean, I, I ended up amassing almost well, over 50 fights as an amateur. And um, and I just got bit by the bug. Dude. I was fighting on – there was this promotion in Delaware called Combat in the Cage that I fought a lot for. But um, pretty much every major promotion outside of CFFC – and like Art of War, all the newer promotions locally, I've I've I fought for I fought for Lock in the Cage. Um, yeah, I, I I pretty much fought for every major promotion in the area. Well, all the local promotions in the area, uh, with the exception of those two. You've had Muay Thai fights too, right? Yeah, I had Muay Thai, kickboxing, um, boxing. I did the Golden Gloves in 08. Um, had a couple amateur fights prior to that, but yeah, that was like, and I ended up getting to the semifinals, uh, lost to a kid from Eastern Pennsylvania. And uh, yeah, what's your favorite rule set to fight under? Um, actually, uh, to be honest, I like boxing. Why is that? Do you think? I don't know. I'm just, I just, I just, you know, it's definitely an art that, uh, no, when they call it sweet science, that's 100 percent the truth. Um, just you know, the different, you know, tactics defensively, how they react to certain punches, how you just you can use your body to block, you know, like you no, know, you know, like a shoulder roll. And, thing, and things like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I've always had this, like, sweet spot for boxing. So you you fought your first MMA fight at light heavyweight, and then you, you told me <laughs> that you also fought at 160? Yeah, 162. That was my... What's wrong with you, bro? You know, <laughs> it was just, I understood, you know, well, it was explained later, like, hey, dude, you can't be fighting this big-ass dude. Because, again, the guy I fought at light heavyweight was, like, a you know, he was built like a the Michelin man. But it, <laughs> everyone else... But everyone else wasn't going to be built like that. So, and also, again, me and my football brand, I'm like, oh, yeah, I could fight these big guys. But then you see how big these dudes actually really are. And you're like, no, yeah, no, I'm good. Fought 160. Um, was that a Muay Thai fight? Yeah. Okay. All right. You got your degree in physics. Mm-hmm. And then you got a master's degree as well, correct? What did you go to? No. Nah. You did not get a No, nah, I never. No. Nah. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so you got your physics degree. When did you start actually training people? The rugby team, there, there was a club team, a rugby team that I played with, and they were, the uh, the head coach was, there was an intern there that actually was like uh, helping us get ready. And I told him I had an interest in, you know, learning how to, um, you know, train like uh, football players. That's all this really. College. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the rugby guys, and he's like, oh, all right, well, you know, you can join us for, you know, the workouts and, and and things like that. So, yeah, that's pretty much how I started. And did you jump right into, like, conjugate-style training? Like, or was it just kind of, like, messing around? <laughs> no, I mean, I didn't – no, it definitely wasn't anything like that. I mean, now, again, looking back in hindsight, there are definitely more aspects of, like, uh, a block periodization than anything. But, yeah, I didn't know anything about, you know, that – 
know, programming and, and periodization schemes, stuff like that. So well after, you know, I stopped doing uh, that. But yeah, I didn't learn. I didn't know what we we're doing. I just was like trying to say, oh man, what's a what's a proper way to uh, uh, deadlift or something like that? I was I was learning techniques, but nothing about how to actually train and coach people yet at that uh, at that point. So someone would come to you and go, Johannes, I want to get stronger, and you would go, okay, let's do this group of exercises yeah, properly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like, you know, if somebody did come to me that at that point in time in life, I'm like, yeah, well, these are deadlifts are great for this reason, squats are great for this reason. Maybe give them like a very basic like bodybuilding pyramid sort of rep ranges. But I didn't know anything about like periodization or you know anything like that until well, you know, well after. Do you agree with Robert Oberst when he says, unless you are deadlifting for competition, you shouldn't deadlift? I mean, uh, not really, because there are more, I mean, you can use a trap bar, which I use a lot more with my athletes in the barbell, just because mechanically your, your hand is in a better position on the side, as opposed to in front, like you would a conventional deadlift with the barbell. But I mean, no, I just because Robert Oberst is a strong as hell and he's a, you know, he's, he's strong a strong man. man. Yeah, he's a strong man. So it's like this guy's picking up weight that not that, you know, only people like him can pick up. So I don't I think if, you know, if, if managed properly, coach and more importantly, coach properly, um, deadlifts are, you know, safe unless you plan on, you know, going for some sort of world record. Then, like, again, you have to associate those risks. But, yeah, I don't, you know, for guys like him, he's picking up like massive weight. So. I can understand why he would feel that he would, he'd, he'd feel that way about someone doing the type of training he does. But you know, overall, I think deadlifts are relatively safe. As far as the hierarchy of strength training is concerned, if you are talking to someone who is just like, okay, the first question you you get is, "I want to get in shape" or "I want to lose weight," is usually the first thing you right. get from a mm-hmm. from a potential client or something like that. If someone's coming to you and they want to lose weight and just generally get in shape, what do you, what do you tell them? Do you like try to, you tell them that you're the wrong guy to talk to because you're going to kick their ass or no, 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 okay. them, I have like, okay, this is what you need to understand about training before we get started. Like I, I, how do you ease someone into a life of strength training if they don't have a background in doing it? Right. Um, well, a lot of the times people have this misconception that they're going to look like, you know, Ronnie Coleman or something like that. Because they're like, oh, well, I don't want to get too big, but I want to do this. And so I just essentially have to sit down with them and identify what their target goals are first. Because if you say, hey, I, Johannes, I want to lose weight, I would just tell you, all right, don't eat a drink for an entire day. You'll lose maybe a half a pound. Or do you want to have a target area where I want to lose 30 pounds in you know, uh, 12 weeks or 16 weeks or whatever? Now you have a target weight and you also have a target date in which that goal should be accomplished by and i also find with people if they don't have really tangible meaning writing these things down and and, and really drawing them into your head and you know if, if you have to look at them every day for some sort of inspiration to keep going on those days we don't feel like going having those tangible goals is is just again that just, just that reminder of the thing you're trying to reach for as far as aspirations and things of that nature um, so the first no. thing you do is, is make it, you have to, you challenge them to be more specific with what their goal is. Yes. Yes. hundred percent. And every coach that I've had, uh, has always told me, you know, the saying, uh, failure to plan is plan to fail. So mm-hmm. when it comes to, you know, I don't care if it's the general population or, or, or an athlete, you know, everything has to have a deadline as far as when you want to do it. That, that way, again, 
you have a time and you do, and you have this other goal attached to that. And that's just a tangible reminder. Okay. So if someone is looking for like general fitness, there's some, Oh, I just want to like, I want to be healthier. I want um, more longevity or I just want to feel better. What kind of exercises and what kind of kind of like split or style do you generally steer people towards? I mean, generally, I would for my general population clients, I would stick to some sort of linear progression um, and kind of outline the fact that as we get older as human beings, naturally, our, 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 our muscle fibers shrink or we start to lose strength and mobility and things of nature just naturally as we age. Um, and sort of remind them, all right, the stronger you are, the better you're going to be at moving your body, the better you're going to be overall from just a, from just a health standpoint. Um, because I think people get the wrong idea about strength training, uh, is that they think like they're going to be, you know, uh, Magnus for Magnuson picking up, you know, telephone poles and, and throwing them, uh, like 10 feet in the air or something like that. It's like, no, that's, you know, he's an exception to the, you know, he's the exception, not the rule. Strength training is just, again, giving your body uh, the strength and needs just to perform like tasks every day. So just having a general level of fitness just makes you move more easily through life. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, you know, again, as we age, we, we, we start to lose that muscle mass or, our, you know, our cardiovascular system um, sort you know, starts to take a hit. So just making sure we're as healthy as possible to again have those later years in life. When do you start incorporating more specific, like, one of the things that I've been really messing around with lately is, um, is rep ranges and what is optimal for jujitsu specifically, because I was doing a, when I, when I lifted at uh, iron sport, Stevie P had me on kind of a five by five powerlifting split. So I would do a squat day, a deadlift day, a, a bench day. And I would do like two weeks of five by five. Then I'd have like two weeks of three by three at a higher percentage. And then I would have like sort of a deload week. And then I would go back to a five by five for two weeks with like five more pounds, maybe. So it was this really right. kind of gradual, like, I don't, would you call that step loading? I don't know if that's. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're just making again, these um, gradual increases over that period of time over like that. Uh, I guess uh, that would be, it's kind of like a um, uh, macro cycle moving in. So yeah, that'd be more like a step loading scheme. But I mean, I never went above like five reps in a set. That's the thing. Like it was entirely designed to build strength. Yeah. Towards the end, build strength. Yep. Yeah. And then he would say things like, okay, after you've done your five by five for the powerlifting movement, feel free to do 12 reps of curls or feel free to do 12 reps of an incline bench. If you want to fill out your pecs or something, he said your mm -hmm. accessories can be higher reps. And, and this is just me having like a brief conversation. He wasn't writing programs out for me, but it's now I'm getting to the point where I'm realizing like, the the strength is important and i'm glad that i have the strength but i can't sustain that for jujitsu rounds like i'm gassing out so quickly that it's like i'm now operating at a much higher rep range just to get my my cardio up which um and i haven't quite dialed that in yet because of fatigue reasons but uh right um i guess my my question is like if you are not how the average person should be trying to get stronger, but as far as like limit strength is concerned, how much of that is a, is a, is even something you focus on unless you're like, want to be a power lifter. You're right. Let's want to be a power lifter. I really don't put too much focus on it. What you're referring to when you get tired, that's a specific type of conditioning just for that sport. 
So if you look at um, so if you look at someone like Floyd, right, who doesn't really do that much quote strength conditioning, he's more of a jogger, more of a guy to keep his aerobic base high. He'll he'll you know he'll jump rope for rounds on end. And when he fought Connor, um, Connor's not a boxer. He he's not used to that pace. He's not used to that to that cardiovascular that that aerobic condition that Floyd has had to be able to recover because he's a very explosive guy. You know he throws hard punches. He throws them. Was super bad. It was super bad intent. Where Floyd, especially now, is more of a defensive boxer. But again, that that specific conditioning for boxing, Connor didn't have, and that's why he started to fatigue in round five, round six, up until Floyd stopped him. One of the things that I've been that I keep getting told when I go to Web is, if you want to get your conditioning up, don't take rounds off. Just you just constantly keep hitting those rounds. So right. the actual skill, the actual sport itself is going to increase your cardio conditioning depending on the intensity you bring to doing rounds. Why? And I, I, I already kind of know the answer to this question, but I really want to get your take on it. Why should you have a strength and conditioning program on top of what you're already doing skill-wise day in, day out um, on the mats? I mean, this, the skill work is always first and foremost. Uh, that is because that's what you're doing. That's what you're competing in. The strength conditioning is a supplement to that skill work. Like when I work with fighters, I really have to make sure that the the program that I write for them doesn't interfere. If I because if I work them too hard and they get too banged up or too sore, now they're not going to be able to adequately recover because there's too much accumulation for you know, for that session. So they could be going to a session where they're wrestling, and because they're you know they're at you know the CNS is already fried because I was you know having them do all these crazy circuits that's more risk for them to get hurt than I get blamed for. And then, you know, I end up either losing that, you know, losing to lose an athlete um, because they think I have no idea what I'm doing. So how, how do you write programs around specific athletes? So uh, knowing the sport is definitely the most important thing. Luckily for me, I was able to play a lot of sports, you know, from high school up until I, I got to um, college. So me Knowing a lot of these sports, I mean, and and they generally are like, especially for me, it's either football, boxing, MMA, or some sort of combat sport, which I've already competed in. So I already know the demands. I already know the special strength they're going to need to for that particular sport as far as specificity. Um, but just knowing again and sort of being able to relate to them. All right, this is how this Zercher squad or this is how this box squad is going to relate to football or boxing or MMA. Okay, so let's talk about um, striking sports. Are there what kind of exercises and like rep ranges and like what, what kind of routine would you put someone through uh, for for like a Muay Thai fighter? I'm thinking about um, uh, Ahmad Ibrahim, uh, right. who you worked with, who I watching footage of that guy fight was terrifying. Yeah, um, how explosive he is. Um, how, how do you arrange? Because ex- I can't imagine you've got that guy deadlifting doing a, a, a conventional deadlift or do you like, how do you, how do you work around? Cause what, what weight class is he fighting in? So I believe for that fight, he was at, he was at 125. Okay. So he's already fast, light on his feet, incredibly <laughs> explosive. What was he, what did you contribute to his ability to dominate in that fight? What? So when Ahmad initially came to me, you know, again, I, I, I've known Ahmad since he was a kid, like eight years old, because, you know, we trained together for a very long time. 
So I was always familiar with him. I mean, really, really close with him. And when he when he came to me for this, when he got to fight for this belt, after I assessed him again, I just realized he 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 just lacked strength. He just lacked the ability to express force, and 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 really be able to throw um, really uh, shots with intent. Because when he came to me initially, he just said how he's never he's never knocked anybody out. He's never stopped anybody because he feels though that strength and that power wasn't there. So when I did my initial assessment. I realized a few things. He had very little uh, aerobic endurance. His aerobic capacity wasn't wasn't very good when I did his VO2 max test. But when I was going through his actual strength assessment, I also realized, oh, shit, for as fast as he is, the reason why he can't throw hard is because he doesn't, he's, he's not very strong. So when I went through that period with him, you know, we did all the tests. I showed him all the numbers. And, yeah, I just, the program that I wrote for him for the, for the most part, again, because right, at, at, at the time we were 18 weeks out. And as far as the, it was more of a, um, again, more of a linear periodization type of idea as far as the actual blocks, but more of a conjugate sort of um, strength program that I wrote for him. So a lot of, you know, box jumps, a lot of rotational movement, uh, medicine ball slams, a lot of, you know, cable presses, just things, especially with his, um, his abdominals being able to rotate properly to put enough power behind that right hand or that, or that right middle kick. And then really just building up his overall strength. Now, as far as his conditioning, a lot of heavy sled drags, a lot of wheelbarrow rocks, a lot of um, sled drags with the farmer walk handles, sled drags while, while holding a barbell in, in a surgery position. He's really trying to build up his, 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 his aerobic endurance and his strength endurance. You were combining the strength exercises with a metabolic component with the sled. Right. So you're, mm-hmm. How much can you do in 18 weeks? I mean, as, as far as the strength, we did, we did what we can. Um, because again, you're going to need, again, the focus for fighters is always endurance. It's always going to be that, uh, that ability to express power over a long period of time, that strength endurance. And so I knew with the mod, okay, I have this many weeks to get him strong, but, after that, I can really focus on him and his power development and be able to, again, express strength very, very quickly. And with his conditioning work with the sleds and everything, all the, all the slow work I had, I had him on, it really built up his aerobic base. So in between those bouts of really, really fast, you know, for that WBC fight, really, really fast exchanges, he was able to recover very, very fast. So he's, I'm, I'm guessing he's in the gym doing his, his Muay Thai Six days a week, at least, doing hitting yeah. heads, doing that kind mm-hmm. of. How many days a week is he working with you? We were working two days a week, and he was oh, at the gym for the um the other four. The strength and conditioning days were separate from the days where he's actually practicing the yeah. skill stuff. How far apart were they spaced for recovery purposes? I mean, yeah, for recovery purposes, I tried to space them out two days, but it really it, it depended on his work schedule. At the, at at the time, he was working a full time job, so. I, I had to kind of play with that a little bit and auto regulate a lot with the mod because again his work schedule would change on a dime. Mm-hmm. So it was it was I mean we made it work but it was it was definitely a challenge. When you're doing an assessment, tell me about um, VO2 max and how you assess cardio conditioning and strength and power because I, I do you do that in one session like how does that work? No, I do it usually over a few. So because I don't want to combine a bunch of different, especially when you're talking about. Um, moving from strength to more in an endurance session. Never want to do that because one, I don't want them already fatigued from the strength work. 
to go into their, you know, their endurance stuff. I try to leave, you know, at least a day in between. But when I look at the, the VO2 max, the beep test has been the one thing that's been working for me. And essentially what it is, is you set um, like cones or something like that at a certain distance. And you have this timer um, that beeps at certain intervals. So it can beep the first time between, you know, 10 to 15 seconds. Then it can beep it and then you just turn down intervals according to the test. And what that does is it allows you to get a, a, really, a really good gauge on where, where their steady state heart rate would be and their, uh, their, 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 their max heart rate. VO2 max is how much oxygen you're able to get into your system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How much oxygen that you're um, using to fuel your muscles. And you can determine that, like, do you have someone like they're, that they're breathing into? So I have this thing, it's called a Pinot. If you ever see it, it's a, um, it's a mask and it has a, uh, like a little, looks like a, a little book bag that you breathe into. And I have the app on my tablet and it, and it, and it reads where you'll be able to max with deep for that period of time. And it just allows me to store it. That way I have, again, a track record of how much they're progressing or regressing. So when you're trying to get someone's VO2 max up, you're doing that with sprints and like high intensity yeah. stuff? Or are you doing like steady state cardio? Uh, well, it's more for that, for that, for that, uh, for that beep test. They're not really, um, sprinkling. again, you're trying to determine where the VO2 max would lies within two, two, two different zones. And again, with the, uh, the intervals, they start to speed up the longer the test goes. So it can be again from 10 to 15 seconds in between, uh, bursts and then it'll go down like eight or six, or it will just keep going down. So you pretty much are like, you're about to hit your, 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 your uh, max heart rate you're tracking recovery from your max heart rate exactly yep you're doing that. Mm -hmm. okay someone mm -hmm. was telling me that your recovery from your max heart rate is more important than how long you can stay at your max heart rate yeah yeah again that aerobic that, that aerobic capacity is going to allow you just to recover between really really fast bouts of anaerobic activity so without being able to recover, your muscles are just going to start to build that lactic acid and they're, they're just going to get fatigued. How do you assess power output? So I have a device. It's called a, it's called a Rep1. Um, a doctor named Brian Mann is, has been really putting out a lot of cool work on velocity-based training. And so what this device does is, is it allows me to track your bar speed and how fast you're moving a barbell or how, how fast you're moving. You know, I can track it through like medicine ball uh, throw things like that. It's really, really cool. Um, the, uh, device and it just, and it has a spindle on it. So when you throw it, the spindle comes up and by the time it comes up, it already has a reading of how much force you're putting out. So, so it allows me to like a string to, a. yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Real quick. Actually, I have it right next to me. So it has a, let me know if you can see this. It has this thing right here, which is what gets attached to the, the end of a barbell. And then this is what it looks like as far as uh, the device itself. Since we're not on video, this is basically a strap attached to a spindle that measures the velocity of something. Right, right. Yep. It measures it's the bar speed. Loaded, I'm guessing. So it yep. checks the resistance. Wow. Yep. Yep. Everything's, Damn, yeah, it's pretty low. Dude, and it took me, so when I ordered it, it, it took, like, it was like a three-month waiting list to get one of these because, you know, they were, I guess, in the time at very, very high demand, so they were they were just backordered but yeah this again this thing is amazing um it just gives me so much it just takes a lot of work from out of me you know off of me as far as being able to calculate stuff because that does everything for you and, uh, and and i mentioned dr brian mann um earlier who was 
who's been doing a lot of research and a lot of um, training a lot of fighters and uh, athletes with that, you know, using uh, blast-based training. And he just wrote a book, you know, uh, kind of detailing, like, numbers to look out for, different indicators, how you would uh, improve certain bar speeds on, um, you know, like a barbell uh, clean and jerk or something like that. How, no, it's just a really good, it's just a very in-depth uh, sort of look at blasty-based training. How much does a, a fighter's or athlete's genetics determine their ability to progress uh, within a given time frame? Like, I know that in particular that I was a very fast sprinter um, when I was in high school. So when I played baseball, I was on the varsity team as a pinch runner because they didn't feel like letting me actually play baseball, but they wanted me to run for the pitcher who was too slow to make it from first to second base. But I have like zero cardio endurance. And even though right now my cardio is like the best it's ever been, I still gas out incredibly quickly. So um, short of actually doing an assessment with you, because we're on the on a Zoom call right now, what do you what would be the best way for me to improve my cardio threshold for something explosive like jujitsu or kickboxing um, apart from doing the sport itself? You definitely want to find out where your resting heart where your resting heart rate is. That way you can know what the activity, how much it's actually uh, how much is actually stressing you as far as your cardio system or and, and how long it takes you to recover from that bout of, act, of activity. But if your aerobic base is really low, I mean, I would definitely start with something, you know, very moderate, like, you know, jump roping, something very low, you know, uh, very low level plyometric. Um, but you still, um, you're going to be able to elevate, uh, your, you know, elevate your heart rate and build that, you know, that aerobic base. I like the agility ladder again, just for that steady state sort of uh, aerobic sorry, uh, activity. It's an agility ladder. Oh, oh you put on the floor. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you put on, you put on, you put on the floor. Uh, any type of very, very uh, long, you know, like jogging, but for long distances, but at a very low intensity. Again, just building your base first before you start adding uh, other you know, methods to build that base. I jog probably twice a week, steady state, for like <laughs> half an hour at like 5.4 miles an hour. And I'm getting better at that. And it's very slow progress, but I feel like I'm sleeping better. And I also feel like I generally, I just generally feel better with better cardio, which is, is interesting. Duh. Right. <laughs> right. If your sport, if you're in a combat sport or even maybe even football, where you're doing something that's like highly explosive for short bursts, mm. What is the benefit of steady state cardio if that's not how the sport is actually expressed? I mean, I mean, again, just for the just for recovery aspect. I mean, let's look at football. Uh, the average football plays play lasts for around uh, three to four seconds, and every player on that field has only forty five seconds to recover until the next bout, and then you have another forty five seconds. And let's say the team's running like you know a no huddle or something like that. Not, not give you time to be able to recover. That's where steady state cardio comes into play because, again, just, just having that aerobic base just going to allow you to recover so much faster, again, in between these bouts of explosive movements. You, you said that um, you had Ahmad doing Zercher carries with a sled. Mm -hmm. Yep. One time you told me, I think it was um, one of the cardio, uh, one of the strength and conditioning classes I came to, that you have different systems that you have to train. What's the benefit of training the systems separately 
or training them together, like you were just describing? Like, should I be right. doing a separate, like, like how often should I be stacking those or should I be having like completely separate workouts for sprints then a completely separate workout for cardio, then a completely separate workout for strength then a completely separate work. You know what I'm saying? So again, that that's really going to depend on, again, if, if you, if you are just speaking just from a cardiovascular standpoint. So this is what I'm doing and tell me if I'm right. completely ridiculous here. Um, I won't be offended. <laughs> so, <laughs> So I generally do two days of jujitsu. Okay. Um, one kickboxing class at this point. Um, and then I'll do two full body lifting days. One of them is based around a, a deadlift, trap bar deadlift. And the other okay. is based around a squat. So I'll do a primary, like my primary thing will be like, I'll do squat. I'll, I bench every strength workout because I can recover quickly, but so I'll do the mm -hmm. squat day and a deadlift day, but they end up being full body days. Um, and I do those separate from my jujitsu and kickboxing. And then I do at least one day of steady state cardio. Um, so I'm, yeah, that's like. It's a lot of workouts. Yeah, it is a lot of workouts. So I'm yeah. be doing too many workouts. Yeah. I mean, that, that can always be an issue, but um, well, how do you I, feel? I'm feeling what, ha what ends up happening is I go to jujitsu after like a lifting day and I'm just, I'm sluggish. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the cardio day ends up being how I sort like today I did a, so I did, I lifted Sunday, did a strongman workout actually with some out of town friends. And then Monday was so sore. I was like, I am not going to jitsu. I, I just can't, I, I'm just, I'm just too beat up. Right. And then last night I did jujitsu, um, smacked my head against the mat and like my shoulder is like all jacked up right now. Not, I didn't tear anything, but just like, you know, really, really tight. So today I just did steady state cardio because I wanted to get my heart rate going without overstressing my muscles. So I do mm -hmm. auto regulate depending on how intense things get, but right. I, but I, I am finding that I can't, I feel like my cardio in jujitsu I can't train as hard as I want to because I'm gassing out so quickly. I don't know if that's because I'm exhausted from the day before or because I just haven't learned how to relax in jujitsu. And like, maybe I should dial back the lifting or maybe not do as many sets or, you know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if do you usually have like real days, days where you do like, it's like stuff that's real high volume. So right now I'm doing, I'm my powerlifting movements are, are five by five. Okay. And then I'll do some accessories that are like 12 reps. And I think, well, a lot of it is that I'm rehabbing from being injured. Oh yeah. Yeah. You were talking so, before. So it's like, I'm not, I want to get back to full strength. So for me to do like the same workout four weeks. So I'm, I'm basically doing, um, actually, I guess you'd call it, maybe that's the right definition of step loading. I'll, I'll use the same weight for like three weeks. I won't go up at all. And then okay. after three weeks where I'm feeling really confident with the weight, then I'll add 10 pounds. So I'm not doing crazy linear progression with anything. Mm -hmm. I just think that maybe the intensity I bring intensity, the, the spazzing out I bring <laughs> to jujitsu is, is right. making it harder to recover. I mean, that could be it too. Um, now when you're between workouts, like are, are there, like, how do you feel if you were to go from 
uh, total body workout one day in jujitsu, maybe the, the, that next morning or that next day or the day after. So the thing is every workout, like I feel great after every workout, I've been having amazing lifting sessions and after jujitsu and kickboxing, like I feel fantastic. Right. But then if I had a day in between every workout, I know I'd feel even better, but I also feel like I'd be wasting time. You know what I mean? I don't know. Like I, I, there's a, a kind of thing where it's like, if I'm not training jujitsu at least twice a week, I feel like I'm falling behind. I mean, yeah. I mean, you are missing a training session, uh, te- no, technically you're in, and not working on that particular technique that you know, is going on in class. But, you know, I would try to, I, I'd maybe try to X out a day of, of weightlifting and just add another day of jujitsu. So two days of like pretty intense strength training on top of three days of skill training <laughs> Might be a little too much right now. Okay. That might be it. But part of me wants to just work harder and get my cardio up so I can just do more, which maybe that's the wrong way to look at it. Yeah. I mean, if you're thinking, you know, specifically of cardio, uh, you, you, you could try. And I've um, done this before with uh, a couple you know, grappling clients of mine is immediately after they're done wrestling practice, they come to me that way. I mean, and on these are strictly on days where we're only doing more aerobic style training because they're already fatigued and I can all, you know, get a sense of how well they're, they're going to recover even, you know, during bouts of like, you know, not in high, not high in fatigue, but when, when they're relatively tired, especially for sports like wrestling, which is again, you know, it's you no know, in high school. It's only six minutes long between the three uh, periods. So you have to be uber explosive for again, three, four seconds, be able to recover, be explosive, be, be, be able to recover. And that's, again, that's the importance of, of, of building that aerobic base. I think that I, what I might be doing right now is I'm, they're trying to serve two masters of like trying to learn the skills by spending a lot of time on the mats. Uh, mm-hmm. But then also trying to get back to like where I was powerlifting five years ago. So building muscle takes a lot of energy. Well, it I takes might, a lot of time, right? I might just be like, just have not have enough energy to, to, to do both. Yeah. I would, I, again, just, just cut back on maybe a, a, a weight training day and just, you know, do another day of jujitsu and maybe that your body will, um, so maybe a, a, a lot better trying, just trying that. How much resistance do you get to your training programs when you're talking to somebody or do you, do they just like put everything? Oh God. Nah, it's a man. I had, so it's funny you mentioned that, um, uh, I worked with a couple of boxers and they were the ones that I get the most kind of pushback from because a lot of them are still stuck in, they still look at strength and conditioning as like bodybuilding. Like I'm going to put a bunch of muscle on this guy. They'll become a mobile. They're going to become like stuff like a board. So I get resistance in that way because a lot of people in that uh, sport haven't really caught on to strength and conditioning, not just, you know, bodybuilding. Um, as far as MMA guys, it's, it's tough because you want to always keep in contact with the skills coaches. And I've done that in the, in the past with clients that I've worked with from outside gyms. And there seems to be a lot of egos with coaches. Like they never want to be, everyone wants to be the head honcho. And me, for me, if I'm working with a fighter, it's about the fighter. It's not about me. It's not about anyone else, but getting this person as ready as we possibly can to, to, to go and fight, but trying to communicate with 
a group of coaches unless they've worked together before is pretty tough because my job as a strength and conditioning coach is to make sure I'm training them optimally. I don't, I don't want to run them through this hard anaerobic workout when they just got done a hard wrestling practice like a couple hours earlier or, or, or later on earlier or, or in that day. Because um, I have to account for accumulation. I have to account for their ability to recover. And I just, the, like, you know, the strength conditioning coach seems like the one that's going to take if their fight or lose. Oh, they're doing too much strength conditioning. They got to cut back. So you're the first person people blame if things go wrong. Uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely been, it's happened before, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I've been <laughs> de- definitely the brunt of the blame for, uh, some, some athletes I've worked with at, out at in the past. So when you're doing a group style workout, like the ones I've been to at web, mm-hmm. how are you choosing what exercises to do? Cause it seems like it's different every time you go in there. Yeah. So what I really try to do is, is. I, 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 hate, I hate to even use this term, uh, functional sort of stuff that people can do, like farmer's walks, like Zercher carries, and try to keep it something that's going to be compound and not going to take a lot of isolation, um, you know, uh, work to actually uh, be able to build that strength. And I try to keep it general, um, stuff people have probably done before just from MMA training, uh, maybe some stuff that people have seen before as far as they might have seen a video and seen like farmer walks, they've seen a strong man do it. And I try to keep it as, you know, as general as I possibly can, because I don't know everyone's numbers for as far as their, you know, their general strength. I don't know everyone's cardiovascular uh, numbers. So I try to keep it, you know, within reason, but stuff that people would, you know, would be familiar with as far as movements. What do you think the benefit of having strength and conditioning before a skill session is? Uh, I don't. Um, no, that's not optimal. No, I wouldn't. I mean, at least for me, I, I, you know, I was always told by, you know, people that I've mentored with that work with athletes, not just fighters or anything like that, that the skill is the most important, you know, uh, aspect of any sport. If you don't have the skill, I don't, I don't, I don't care how, you know, strong you are. Uh, I can't put, in, you know, just anybody behind Tom in Tom Brady's spot because they don't have the skill that Tom Brady has at that, at that particular sport. But yeah, skill sessions will always supersede, you know, strength training. I, I, I'd rather them miss a session with me and then I can auto-regulate to the next session as far as what we got to make up than miss a skill session. I had another question I was going to ask you, but now it's, hmm. it's, it escaped me. Um, oh, we haven't talked about diet at all. What you try to do with your athletes when it comes to diet. Hmm. Is that something you discuss with them? Uh, in a general sense, um, yes, but I do have uh, a friend of mine that is a, a certified dietitian and she's worked with athletes um, before when she was in school. So I kind of put them on to her, but if they have no idea what they're doing as far as uh, the function of a protein or they don't know the function of a protein or carbohydrate or fat, you know, um, but I'm not like a diet person whatsoever. I can give you like a general sort of idea, but I wouldn't hire me to <laughs> write your, uh, write your diets. Okay. It seems like most of the athletes that I follow do those meal prep, uh, services anyway that just like uh, mail you a bunch of like tupperware containers and that's your meals for the week or something i mean yeah it's, it does seem pretty convenient i think it's already portioned you get to pick your meals you don't have to cook anything which means you're not you know relying on your human error to put too much carbs in this bowl of oatmeal as opposed to i didn't put enough honey on my rice when i was eating it but uh, yeah those meal prep services definitely seem to be super convenient as far as you know uh just from a preparation standpoint 
how much uh, of a role does strength and conditioning play in weight cutting? I mean, yeah, it plays a really, you know, solid role because uh, you want to be able to, especially when the fighter is uh, in, 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 in between fights, because the more lean muscle mass that you can build and that they're going to have, uh, it would make it that much easier come the time to cut the weight. But yeah, of course, you don't want to build the mass when they're going into a camp. But if they're outside of camp, you want to try and bring them up from a, a hypertrophy standpoint. That way, again, it'll be a lot easier to cut the weight uh, you know, later on down the road when they're actually getting ready for their contest. It's interesting that you mentioned the, the bodybuilding um, mindset when the bo- talking about the boxers because it's like you can build strength without putting on mass, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, the two, you, yeah, the two are. What were you saying? I was going to ask what? Like, how, okay, those are two different systems. Then building muscle mm-hmm. and building strength are not. That's not a one to one. Yeah, it's not. You, you. I'm pretty sure you've ran into people, you know, that you've been in the gym with. They don't look very strong, but they get down to a squat rack and they're squatting 600 pounds. You're like, whoa. Yes, I, I have that, seen yeah. that, and it always is—it just it, it blows my freaking mind. So, how do you? <coughs> you don't. So, bless you. So you do bodybuilding style training, but I mean, people are going to put on some kind of muscle if you're tr- if you're lifting weights, no matter what. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, hundred percent. Uh, especially that's a lot to do with diet uh, as well. If they're getting enough calories, and like I don't, I don't, I don't know if you've seen Conor McGregor. No, recently he's like 190 pounds now. Dude's jacked. Is he um, really though? I mean, from the pictures I saw, he is. So, so, so I'm assuming by him going up to 190 pounds, he's probably going to cut down to 170. But maybe mm-hmm. he can't make it to 55 anymore. That's the only reason I can think of that he put on that kind of muscle mass. But um, so we're going to get that Nate Diaz trilogy fight. That's what's going to happen, right? From I mean, uh, that seems to be the fight right now. I mean, Jorge Masvidal's fighting Colby. Um, yeah, Nate would be probably. I mean, Dustin Poirier is probably not going to take another fight with Connor. Right. Uh, so then Nate Diaz would be. Yeah, because that fight will sell like crazy if they so if, if you're they maintaining do that. if you're not in a calorie deficit if you're just maintaining the same maintenance calories and you're doing strength training mm-hmm. you can get stronger without putting on muscle. Yeah, because again, with with added muscle is added body weight. So if you're trying to make a, a hundred and you know seventy pounds, which is a uh, uh, welterweight and you're 210 pounds jacked yeah that that that's going to be an issue being carrying that much muscle because that way you don't have to suffer on your on on your way down and at, on top of that uh probably lose some element of your strength how much strength are people losing during the weight cut preparation uh if done wrong a lot uh if not done with someone who is a no i'm not a weight cutting guy at all i don't okay. <laughs> i mean i've I've been the weight cuts. I've helped people cut weight, but as far as the the preparation as a as a as you go into the weight cut, yeah, I I wouldn't I wouldn't know. But depending upon again your fitness level and whether you do the weight cut right, that is going to uh, you know determine your performance the following day. Because again, you're with weight cutting, you're you're sucking water out of your muscles to be able to you know, make a certain weight and then you know, replenish later on. Um, you know, within the 24 hours before the, uh, the event, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Just, you just have to know what you're doing with weight cutting. Dude, I'm watching Dylan around the gym and just, I, I don't even, I can't even, cause he's, I think he's fighting at 125. And last time I talked to him, he was at 133, I think. Mm-hmm. 
and just, and, and, you know, he's always like got a sweatshirt on and, and I'm in there and like, you know, shorts and a t-shirt and I'm uncomfortable. Right. And <laughs> yeah, then, uh, yeah. Cause remember I saw him on, um, I saw him, I saw him on Tuesday and he's like, you know, he's a small guy. And I was looking at him, I was like, can't do that. Okay. Cause he doesn't have a lot of, you know, fat on him when I was watching him work out and I was like, where is he getting the, like, the, where's he getting the, like the west of the water off? Well, also he's doing like, you know, he'll do five three minute rounds in a row with people of varying sizes. And, you know, he's, he's, he's taking down like, you know, guys that are six feet tall, just crazy watching that kid fight. I can't wait to watch his fight um, this weekend. Uh, yeah. yeah, Yep. That'll be good. So what do you got? Uh, what kind of projects are you working on? What's, what's next for you, Johannes? So for me, uh, working on, you know, really getting my online uh, coaching up to date and, and really focusing on getting, getting that launched um, and just continuing to learn, man. Look, I, I'm in it for a long haul with this stuff. And, and for me, this isn't just about, you know, uh, having a high profile clients or having, you know, a social media following that supersedes like the rock film like that. But I just, I'm like, I'm in this for the long haul, especially because I just love doing what I do. If people want to work out with you, uh, what do they do? So they can go to my uh, Instagram page, which is Havoc Strong underscore three sixty five. Um, I have a link there from my um, my fight sport assessment for all my combat athletes who are uh, lost when it comes to their strength conditioning. They you know they don't have anyone that they can um, uh, go hire as a coach. Um, I have my fight assessment. I have my Strong Her program, and I also have a page linked to my YouTube channel. And I am going to be launching my uh, Train Heroic program, hopefully within the next two weeks. I just have some tweaks I want to make to it. Nice. But uh, hopefully the next two weeks I'll be launching that. What kind, of, uh, what kind of program is that? Is it like a, what's it geared towards? So it's going to be geared towards just um, general, like gen pop. I don't have anything specific to athletes like that yet. Um, just really trying to get my brand out there and, and really focus on like a general population. It's supposed to be a very, very specialized and specific one. And you do group classes at web, uh, what days, at what time? Uh, I am there Tuesday mornings at 10 and Friday mornings at 10. Well, Johannes, I learned something every time I talk to you and, uh, it's been, Oh, dude, Rob, this is great, man. I appreciate you. Uh, want to actually, talking, yeah, have a, have, have a, have a, have a conversation though. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate it, Rob. It's just so much fun to like, cause I, I've, I've, you know, been a meathead for so long and, and, you know, to get to talk to people who like are really steeped in this and then to have the crossover with combat sports, it's just been, it's been really great to get to know you. No, yeah, but dude, I feel the same, man. Uh, again, thanks for having me on, man. Really, really, really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. You can find Johannes on Instagram at havoc strong underscore three sixty five, And you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Robert Kathern. until next time.